Hello, and welcome to Investigative Postcast, a podcast program from Investigative Post. I'm Jim Heaney, editor of Investigative Post. On December 4th, we hosted a speaker panel at Big Ditch Brewery in downtown Buffalo. The topic, the government's growing hostility towards the press. I moderated a panel discussion that included Jerry Zarimsky, Washington Bureau Chief of the Buffalo News, Jimmy Vielkind, Albany Bureau Chief of Politico, New York, and Steve Brown, investigative reporter with WGRZ-TV News. Let me start out with, with Jerry. <clears throat> Tell me a little bit about how, how things have changed in the nature of your interactions with government officials and corporate officials, for that matter. Sure. Um, interestingly, as far as I'm concerned, things haven't changed as much as you would think. Uh, what Jim talks about, this idea of government lacks being in our way, it's been that way since I've been in what went to Washington in 1989. Um, and people stonewalling you on FOIA requests. I remember in 1990, I filed a FOIA request with the U.S. Navy because there was this uh, terrible scandal where uh, a bunch of Navy uh, uh, sailors were at a conference and they harassed all these women. It was called the Tailhook Scandal. And I FOIA the name and hometown of every sailor, right? I got a response in the year 2000. <laughs> so that, that gives you some idea of what it's been like for a long time. So from my standpoint, part of my job has always been to find ways to get around it. And there are definitely ways to get around it. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, believe it or not, members of Congress and their staffs continue to be really good sources uh, on both parties, even up till this present day. And so a lot of times when I find out things that turn into being really good stories, it's because I've gotten a tip from a congressional staffer. There's also just the, the matter of networking. Uh, two of the better stories that I've gotten in recent years, I've gotten because I happen to bump into somebody who worked for the federal government who happened to be uh, from Buffalo, and I bumped into him at a bar, and we started talking. <laughs> Uh, so that old-fashioned networking still works. So, you know, from my standpoint, it hasn't changed that much. What has changed a little bit this year is that the Trump administration doesn't have the very extensive press staff that the Obama administration and the Bush administration had before it. Uh, back in the day, in those two administrations, if someone from Buffalo were, were coming to the White House, I would get everything set up for me. It would be easy, you know? I'd have something set up to talk to the people afterwards, and I could do a little feature story on so-and-so goes to the White House for this reason. Well, I find out through the grapevine about uh, six weeks ago that uh, the Buffalo Bills teen doctor and his wife are coming to the White House because their, uh, their daughter died of an opioid overdose. So they're gonna be behind the president as the president announces his, his opioid initiative. I got no help from the White House on that whatsoever. I had to trace down that, that doctor's phone number, his cell phone number. I had to call, you know, call Cole. I got very lucky in that I knew someone who was with them at the time who, who basically said, you really ought to talk to Jerry. And they were on their way to the airport and they came back to talk to me. That's, that's how it's more difficult for me. It's a lot more stressful because under an earlier administration that really worked hard uh, with the regional press, that would have been an easy story for me to do, but it turned out to be hard. But we managed to get it done when it was on the front page. So that's just one example of how it's changed. All right, Jimmy, if you can talk from, <coughs> from an Albany perspective. Um, sure. <coughs> Excuse 
Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing this for nine years, which has principally been under the administration of our current governor and most excellent current governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, and the tail end of the Patterson administration. And for those of you who remember, David Patterson became the governor of New York sort of by accident. Uh, the guy before him had a little misunderstanding. And uh, David Patterson got a promotion that he neither sought nor really wanted to, to, to receive. Um, but I've come to learn over that time essentially what Jerry has said, that it's not good. And you essentially learn as a government and political reporter that, that you're not going to have the door open for you from government agencies, which is a shame. Because as Jim said, it is the public's information. It's our job to get the information on behalf of the public. And so in the same way that Jerry described, on the state level, we do work around. We do talk to state legislators. We do talk to lobbyists. We do talk to people who are in the know. Uh, and to reiterate your point, some of the, the best stories I've gotten over the past few years have involved tips from guys who I was in the Boy Scouts with. Uh, and I, I think the other one was, was again running into somebody at the bar. So that, that does matter and that is, that is important even if it's intangibly important. Um, what I think is happening, what I think is concerning is sort of a bleeding down effect that I'm sure we're gonna get into this over the course of the night as we talk about Trump as the, the big uh, elephant in the room. Um, I recently was writing a story about these efficiency plans that our current and most excellent current governor, Andrew Cuomo, has asked all counties in the state to develop um, to, to see about how much savings they have. And so in the course of doing this, I asked the state six times, can you give me these reports that were filed? <clears throat> and the answer came back, no. So I started calling local governments around the state to say, hey, can you give me these reports that you filed? Can you do it? And almost to a T, the answer was, what's your email address? Here's the report. Here's the report. So I take that as a heartening sign that there are people and there are government officials. And I do think that it is the smaller the level of local government, the, generally speaking, the better the, better the response is going to be. Um, but it is evident at the state level we have in Albany and in the Legislative Correspondence Association, which is our press corps, become accustomed to sort of making the state and the administration our last stop in our reporting. Um, and that is a shame. So. Steve? It's a little bit different um, for us on a local level um, because we have to deal both with federal issues and with state issues as it trickles down. Um, and the disadvantage that we have that Jimmy and Jerry have that I don't have is that if you get somebody who's not cooperative, well, you can just go show up at their door. Um, a little difficult to get to Albany or Washington from here, and they do have policies and programs that do have a great deal of effect. But I will say this about this wave of uh, purposeful delaying of the release of information. I say purposeful because I mean it. Um, and I'll give you an example of this. And it happens on a local level. I believe that what we've seen to a great extent on the federal level for a long period of time, to a lesser extent on the state level that we've seen for a period of time, it, it you know, smart operators figure out how it is that they can avoid stories that are not flattering. Um, and you can say a lot about the city of Buffalo, but the mayor is a smart operator. Um, I covered a news conference in the spring about their annual paving program. This is the most pedestrian story that you will ever see. 
but I was out there and I was, you know, I'm taking this in and I'm listening. And there's the commissioner, Steve Stepniak, talking about how they're gonna, you know, pave a certain number of mi lane miles of road this year, and we can't do all of them. So of course my question was, okay, how do you pick which lane, you know, which, which street gets serviced and which doesn't? Oh, we go out and walk them every day. Uh, every year we walk them and we rate them at a score of one to 10. I said, that's really interesting. And when I got back to the office, I filed a freedom of information request for the entire city. <laughs> Saying, okay, let's see what roads there. Because the clear signal that there weren't going to be servicing the, all of the worst roads was this sentence that was uttered roughly. And all of the work will, there will be work done in every district in the city in an election year. Really? Every district. Interesting. So we filed the Freedom of Information request. They snoozed on it and lost. They forgot, they missed the deadline, but it took us weeks to get this information that they had in their hand, ready and available, were using every day, had used it to confer with members of the Common Council, showed them what streets that they were attending to. Because the story that they wanted to avoid, which was the story that we did, is that they covered X number of streets but didn't get to the streets that were lower rated in other districts. And we also found out where the worst rated streets were in the city. And guess what? They're kind of concentrated in particular districts in the city. Anybody want to guess? East side. Of course it is. Of course it is. So this was what it is that they did, is that they delayed. But it took us some effort. It took us a little bit of concentration on making sure that we weren't going to quit on it. But it is my belief that, and the city of Buffalo is not unique in this particular fashion. They want you to quit. They're hoping to hold you off so that some other thing will happen. A snowstorm on Wednesday, a Bills game on Sunday, and suddenly you're two weeks away from what it is that you would ask them for, and you may just forget, or you may forget to file your appeal for the Freedom of Information request. So, it happens, it happens on all levels. And we're seeing a disturbing, I think, we're seeing a disturbing amount of it on the local level, currently. Yeah, sure. Does, do people in the audience, does anyone, can you raise your hand if you filed a Freedom of Information Law request? Good Anybody? for you. Yeah, oh, good for you. Good for you. But, um, and no journalist is good at math. I'm gonna say about half, maybe. <laughs> um, so for people who don't know, because, because Steve brought up a really important point. You file a request and the agency has five days to, to write you back and they basically always say, thank you for your request, we got it, we'll work on it, we'll give it you some due response in 20, 20 days. 20 days. Uh, and then they can delay and delay and delay and delay. And the way the law is written here in New York, you're sort of in a no man's land uh, because they have not denied your request. They are working on it. And until you can assert what's called a constructive denial, basically that you're, you're denying, you're delaying me to the point that you're denying me, there is no real next step. Uh, and so Jerry told a story about how he has a, 10 years is pretty good. Um, <laughs> eight months with the state is probably about average, but if you talk to people in Albany, and I don't know if this is the case in Western New York or Washington, but I will speak to Albany that there are such routine delays on documents requested through the Freedom of Information Law that people now know you have to sue. 
you want your documents, you have to sue. And that's troubling, and we can talk more about that. And I'm sorry to grab the microphone. Um, I honestly don't think it's that bad on the federal level. On that example that I gave uh, of the US Navy, that was when I was just starting out in Washington, and I was putting out FOIA requests on everything I could possibly think of. And <laughs> honestly, I didn't press it the way I press FOIA requests that I really need to have answered. And usually when I have a situation like that, it is, you know, a few months, eight months is, yeah, it, it can be like that. But I, from what you're saying, I don't think it's quite as bad with the federal government, or at least hasn't been to date uh, in terms of getting FOIA requests uh, responded to, although it varies dramatically from agency to agency, too. So. I did two plus years. Wow. For a HUD. We did a series of stories about, um, my voice is almost loud enough to carry the room. We did a series of stories about um, the conditions in public housing here in the city of Buffalo, much of which is ancient. They had public housing here before HUD. Think about that for a second. They had public housing before the federal agency responsible for, for public housing. Um, and much of it is in deplorable condition. And they have a more than small problem with bed bugs in this. No fault to the people that live in it. But it took us, and I just got the end of it, it took us two plus years to get the inspection reports, which they do every year. So I'm working off of, in 2017, I was working off of 2015 data, and it took two plus years to get that out of there. I'm gonna step away from FOIL for a minute and just talk about the kind of interpersonal, interpersonal relationships. Danielle Ferrat did a story on uh, abuses by strike force in the police department several months back. And I want to tell you the three reactions she's got. She got a call from Mike DeGeorge, the mayor's uh, press secretary, informing her that because of her story, she would never, ever be allowed to interview the mayor ever again. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. <laughs> the president of the Police Benevolent Association just the other day informed her that we will never, ever, ever, ever speak to you again. Take us off the road. And she interviewed Darius Pridgen, the, uh, the uh, town council president, who didn't like the story, who, who had the council issue an edict that going forward, all reporters were to sit in a designated area. And if they wanted to ask questions of council members at the conclusion of council meetings, they were to ask permission from the press okay. That's the kind, at the local level, that's the kind of, uh, you know, politicians to a growing degree feel they have the right now to not even talk to reporters. Now the mayor did, ran an interview when Daniela showed up. If you want our experience, you want to talk to the mayor or the county executive, you need to show up at a press event where they can't they can run away from you, but if they don't want to talk to you, they literally have to run away from you on camera. Mm -hmm. And that will stop some of them, you know, because it's, it's less embarrassing to answer questions than it is to run away. Uh, Dan Telbach has had experiences where the uh, Erie County Health Commissioner, for over a year, Dan had the gall to expose lead poisoning problems in the city of Buffalo that the Erie County Department of Health wasn't doing a particularly good job addressing. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, the kind of health commissioner's response was, I am not talking to you anymore. And 
and we keep using the same footage of her literally running away from Dan when we attempted to ask her a question because heaven forbid, you know, we can't be talking about lead poisoning if you're not going to write a nice story about it. So that's part of, you know, foils are a part of the problem, but there is a growing uh, almost sense of entitlement on the part of some local officials. And I'm sure it's at the state level as well. Um, for example, the governor, I can't, I don't know, Steve, you tell me, um, has the governor ever granted a one-on-one -on -one interview with anybody in this market who's not, uh, he might have the news. the Buffalo News? Yeah, I, um, I, but, but with the rest I, of the outlets? A brief, briefly, um, the governor frequently visits Western New York. He likes ribbon cuttings. He likes to announce that the state of New York is doing things. As a matter of fact, if you go to any agency, check their press releases, just do this for fun. The most common two words beginning every, most uh, press releases is Governor Cuomo. Governor Cuomo did this, it's like he's running around with a clipboard in Albany going to different agencies and taking care of all of these different facets of state government that touch your lives. But um, yeah, there's, it, it borders, it almost borders on ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been around a really long time, but <laughs> I don't feel like this is all that new. I remember in like 1985, I was covering real estate and the board of realtors stopped talking to me because they, they were, they wrote a letter to, to the editor saying I was unprofessional. And I do some critical stories about Congressman Bill Paxson and all these mysterious expenses that appear on his campaign, uh, his campaign finance report, right around the time he's furnishing a house. So he wouldn't talk to me. Um, and there's a certain member of Congress right now, you probably might be able to guess, who seems somewhat reluctant sometimes to talk to me. Uh, fake, fake news, fake news. Yeah, yeah, I, he's actually fundraising off of Buffalo yeah. News coverage of his stories. So that's the sort of thing, that, that's new, that I've never seen before. Um, but that's more of a sign of the times that, 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 that politicians now feel like they can just declare what you write to be fake news and that, they'll, that some people are gonna believe it. Jimmy? Yeah, um, well that two, two interesting points come from that. One is that every reporter gets frozen out at some point by somebody uh, and professionals uh, know that it's okay, you just shrug it off because it's a big world. And if Congressman Paxson's not speaking to you or if uh, the mayor is not speaking to you, the Common Council will still be speaking to you and the interest groups will still be speaking to you. And by the way, you're still on TV every night. By the way, you're still on A1 of the Buffalo News whenever you need to be every other day, every week, or in these days, three times a day. Good job, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just deal with it. And lo and behold, I've been frozen out many times by many different people. They always come back around. Uh, I was saying to some friends that there's a local developer here uh, who, who ran for governor, Carl Palladino, who at one point denounced me in an yeah. email blast around the state as I think a worm. I don't remember if I was a worm or a planarian, but it was, it was not, he likes the word planarian. But, I, but he denounced me, and you know we, we, we deal with each other now, it's, it's fine. Um, but the second point that Jerry brought up is, is more insidious, and I think is the, the difference in the modern times. 
that if we think about uh, olden times, um, and by olden times I'll define, let's say, the year 2000. Um, if you were a public official and you had a great street paving plan, or you had a major piece of legislation, or you had uh, money that you were doling out, and you wanted the world to know, you wanted the registered voters to know about your great thing, how did you get your word out? You had to talk to the TV stations, you had to talk to the newspapers, because the mass media was your path to the people, the constituents who you served. Now, fast forward to 2017, how many Twitter followers does Donald Trump have? Several million. Uh, government websites can distribute information. And don't, don't take this as a complete indictment, because it's great that government websites are putting out normal information, but they can also distribute photos, videos, press releases, uh, things that are more on the propaganda side than the straight up information side of things. Uh, and so now, and going forward, this will only deepen, public officials have a direct path to communicate with constituents, whereas Previously, there was a buffer. The Fourth Estate was something of a buffer. And you could argue that this began to erode with Newt Gingrich and C-SPAN in the early 1990s. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure there are many other previous examples. But now more than ever, there is that ability for direct communication. And I believe following the lead of our president, there is a tendency toward uh, belittling the Fourth Estate, belittling the press corps, and with the power to do so, uh, it, it, it creates a real issue for those of us who are providing objective coverage, who are trying to contextualize the statements of those in power, and who are trying to, to provide a holistic picture of your government and what it is doing. Which leads to the question of, <clears throat> so what? <laughs> so government's making it hard for reporters to do their job. <clears throat> Wow, wow. Um, what is what is the consequence of, of what's going on now when it comes to the public's right to know, the public's right to be able to have information that allows them to make informed decisions at the ballot box, for the public to get not fake news, which is mainstream media provides legitimate news in the face of a lot of efforts on, on illegitimate news outlets like Breitbart News and, and, and folks like that, as well as this pipeline that Jimmy, you just spoke to, where, uh, you know, Donald Trump's the best example, but there's, you know, um, Steve Brown and I have been talking about, you know, Andrew Cuomo has built a pretty impressive press operation that cranks stuff out. It's huge. He, he's like, he's got his own news bureau now. Um, they produce their own newscasts. Yeah. And um, so why should. Why should the folks here and the folks out there, why should they care that this is going on? How is the public interest being harmed by this dynamic that we've been talking about? I think the public interest is being harmed because a certain segment of, of the American public has, partly through the fault of the mass media, but partly through the fact that we've had certain media outlets develop over the years that really encourage people to think ill of the mass media. Uh, certain people, you know, a significant portion of the country now shuts itself off from the work that I do, the work that Jimmy does, uh, the work that television stations do, and they just believe these outlets. They just believe 
Fox News or Breitbart. And, and I get it all the time. I mean, I've been accused of being a Marxist by one of my readers, which, you know, that, that's the sort of thing I get all the time from readers. They just don't trust us anymore. So the consequence of it is, as people have tended to go more and more toward these partisan news sources, they're missing out. Because we're really not partisan. You know, I've written critical stories about Democrats and Republicans, and Jimmy has too. So I, I just think it's bad for the country in the long run because I think that, that people are, you know, retreating to their own little partisan foxholes and shutting us out. So. Yeah, the state of New York spends about 160 billion of your dollars every year, employs about 150,000 people. Uh, it operates prisons. It has the ability to, to lock you up or not. Uh, it has, uh, it cares for those of us who are sick and elderly or who have developmental disabilities. It does really important work. And when you take a deep breath and you think about that, if you put aside every politician, it, it's our government, guys. We own it, right? We pay for it, we own it, it's our government. And we need to know that it's doing the best job that it can. Uh, and when you essentially move toward, um, I think I'll use the word propaganda. When you use, move toward official propaganda, about everything is great, everything is wonderful, it undermines the core of the institution. It allows an official to, to obfuscate, to do more than spin, to, to, to literally paper over problems, and we all suffer. We suffer. The roads don't get paved on the east side. Um, people, in some cases, will be hurt or die in state care, in facilities. Um, wars start. Right? I, I am younger than my other panelists here, but the Vietnam War, and then in my generation, this, the Iraq War, right? People die because of this. So I, I think it's critical that we, in the mainstream media, in the mass media, stand up here and, 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 and make a, a showing for ourselves. Because if the alternative is a lefty press, a righty press, or some variation in between, no one is going to get the full picture, and we as a society are going to make bad decisions. And the government that we own is going to start doing bad things, and it's not going to be worthy of us. That's hard to follow. That is very hard to follow. <laughs> That's really That's hard great. to follow. Um, Jerry, Jimmy, I, 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 I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, I can speak for us in saying that we have wonderful jobs in that we get to do your work. We get to go to the government agencies and ask why or why not. How did this happen? How much did it cost? And we get paid to do it, which is a wonderful thing. And it is a service. It's a service to you. But to me, it's a service to democracy. You know, when I say that in my newsroom, some of the younger heads kind of spin around. But it is. It's a service to democracy. If you don't know what your government's up to, and you don't have a voice you can trust, where are you? It's not a country I, you know, I recognize, if, that, if that's the alternative. So, you know, I think that's, those are the stakes that are at hand. And there is, you know, fudging of things. I mean, people are always going to be uh, tending towards self-interest, and that's natural, you know, whether they're in government or they're in any line of work, my line of work. 
it, you tend towards self-interest. So they're going to tell you the side of the story that they want you to hear. It's our job to discern whether or not how accurate that is. And it's a really important job. Mm -hmm. And the stakes really haven't been higher. Not in my lifetime. I want to, Jerry, to touch base on something we talked about uh, before we got started, which is another kind of new phenomenon where there are efforts on the part of people to not just stonewall, but to intentionally misinform the press in an effort to undermine the press's credibility. We just saw it very recently uh, with the attempt to mislead the Washington Post over the uh, activities of a Senate candidate. So Jerry, if you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I just think that we all, in, in this profession of ours, we all have to exercise greater caution. Um, I don't think this has happened to me yet where someone has really tried to give me a bum steer. But I really wonder if bum steers are becoming something we've just got to look out for all the time. And it's not just uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the incident that you referred to regarding the Washington Post and uh, what, what happened with the false story that they were fed. I think it might be even more insidious than that. And, and I'm just speculating here, so I don't know, but I find it very odd that the Trump administration leaked, a couple people inside the Trump administration leaked terrible things about uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, he's on his way out uh, to be replaced by the CIA director, and then all of a sudden, no, he's not out. Uh, is he out? Isn't he out? Was that a deliberate attempt to leak false information? I don't think we know yet. But I think what this is, is a real lesson for all of us to be extremely careful with what we hear, even if we hear it from a couple of different trusted sources, that maybe in this day and age, that old rule we have to be very careful about. Uh, you know, we're supposed to not report anything until we have two, uh, two sources, two uh, sources that want to be anonymous. What if those anonymous sources are trying to, uh, to make you look bad? Possible in this day and age. All right, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room for a minute. <clears throat> what had been the Donald Trump effect? Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll reference something that uh, the Pointer Institute, which is a major uh, journalism uh, think tank <laughs> training center based out of uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, released a, a poll they commissioned just today. Uh, and some of the findings were that 31% of, uh, of those polled believe that the press is the enemy of America. One in three Americans, okay? It just polls to believe, believe, to, uh, to be believed, and it was done by a legitimate organization. One third believe that what we do undermines this country. 25% said the government should be allowed to censor press reports that they disagree with. Oh, God. Okay? So, I guess my question is, you know, um, things haven't been ginger peachy for a long time, but I don't think even two years ago you would have had one third of the country saying journalists are the enemy of America and the government should be allowed to stop them from printing or broadcasting news that they disagree with. So what has been the, uh, shall we say, the trickle down effect of Donald Trump and where do you see it going? Um, 
from my standpoint, the trickle-down effect is partly what I referenced before. Uh, it's, it's now the sort of thing that will happen that a politician will say, what the Buffalo News is reporting about me is fake news, and cancel your subscription, and send the money that you were going to send to the Buffalo News, send it to me instead. You know, I never imagined that happening. Now it's happening. Uh, but from a reporting standpoint, there, there's like a different sort of pressure that, that you ever have felt before. And I'll, I'll just, I want to say one thing about this that um, I think is, is important for you to know. I come from Trump country, okay? I come from a town of 2,000 people in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, a lot of people uh, in, in, in my hometown still support Donald Trump very, very strongly. And they don't do it because they're, you know, the, they're, they're sheep. They don't do it because they're racist. They don't do it because of all the cliche reasons. There are different reasons why they do that. You know, and some of them are very legitimate. They're, they're, they're you know, they haven't had the economic opportunities that they, they felt that they deserved. And they've seen their family members die of opioid overdoses. So, so, so let's start with that. Those very people, those sorts of people are now putting extraordinary pressure on journalists. I mean, I've gotten the most nasty, hateful, almost violent emails from readers in the last few months. And it's sort of the thing where if I write a critical story about the Republican tax bill, of which I've written several, you know, I'm gonna get some really threatening stuff online. And that's new and it's just, there's just more personal stress involved because of it. At the same time, in a way, this is like a glorious era for journalism. If you look at the stories that are being done by the Washington Post, especially in the Times, covering this administration, there's a lot to cover, a lot of stories getting done. But we're, we just face this newfound pressure uh, to, to, you know, to, uh, from people who really believe that we're on one side. Okay, sure. <clears throat> I, I agree, it's a trickle down effect. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm happy to report that in Albany, there's no one who's as egregious as, as our president in terms of the way they're targeting the press. Um, everything he does, just, just it changes the field, right? Whereas something that would have five years ago been, been thought of as absolutely egregious will now look okay by comparison. And so when, when you move that line, that, that societal political standard, inevitably, people who are going to 75% of the line will be further along than they were before the line was moved. Um, you know, we, we had several years ago, and it's almost quaint to say this now, I was just looking through some old articles before I sat up here tonight, uh, Governor Cuomo's office would uh, kind of lay into journalists personally uh, when they didn't like a story that you were printing. And I can remember at the Times Union and, and later at Politico, my current employer, having debates with editors about, do we print this, right? If they say, for the record, you know, Jimmy Feelkind is fabricating stories, and he did, da, 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 da. Like, do you put that on the record? And I always advocated yes. I always thought, let them, let them, see, let them stand in their own words. The blade, the blade has two, two edges to it, and, and let, them, let them, let it be shown what they are saying, and then let people decide. They can read the reporting facts, and they can read that response. Uh, and I, I actually think that over the course of the 2016 campaign, maybe that mentality sort of led to these attacks getting more airtime, more oxygen than perhaps they deserve. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't want to probably try and relive that because I don't think there's any good way to, to think about that. And I don't know if there is any better path forward than the one that, that we as a country took. Uh, 
Cuomo has actually done less of that of late. That, that seems to have faded out. I, I can't recall the last time there was a sort of an attack on a journalist. Uh, and my hope, my hope is that there will be a class of politicians of both parties, uh, perhaps it will probably be more heavily skewed toward the Democratic Party, that will contrast themselves with Trump, that will look at this as a point of difference. And particularly with the coming presidential campaign, it's weird to say that it's coming in three years, here in 2017, but Christmas, Christmas is also coming. Uh, Christmas is coming sooner, I think. Um, but, but so I, th I think the jury's still out on that. I don't know if there will be a, I don't know if there will be a sort of a backlash. But I do think that the line has moved, and that's that's going to trickle down. Quick question: Political conversations that you've had in the last thirty days compared to four years ago. More, less. More, more, right? More. Isn't it exhausting? <laughs> and I, you know, I do this for a living. It's exhausting. But, I mean, that's the era in which we live in. It, we have a president who can speak directly to his supporters. And 15 years ago, he had to go through us to get to him. So, I think that's, you know, that's the reality that we have today. What concerns me about this, the, the, the level of conversation that we're having today, and it's not really a high level of conversation, it's a you suck, no you suck conversation, um, which plays out every moment, every minute of every day on social media, is that it will drive good people out. It used to be, I used to hear all the time in my former job, uh, covered a lot of campaigns, House, Senate, governor, president, I used to hear all the time, oh my gosh, it's awful, it's really difficult to recruit good candidates these days, because it's so awful, and that was 10 years ago. Can you imagine what it would take to get, you know, you to decide, hey, I'll go through all of that, because, you know, I would like to represent my community and do some good things. I'm just afraid it's gonna drive some good people out, which necessarily means, I think, it's gonna keep the bad people in. <coughs> I can just add to that. I, I'm afraid it's going to drive some good people out of the business uh, of journalism. Because, first of all, we're, we're facing uh, an existential crisis in journalism to begin with. We, we, we aren't able to fund our journalism the way we did for more than a century. And for that reason, there are far, far fewer journalists today than there were 10 years ago. So I know a lot of people who've, who've lost their jobs. I know a lot of people who haven't had raises in years and years and years. And I just worry that the good people who are doing good work today might just say, oh, this is just one more thing to push me out. Or the really bright kid who might be interested in becoming a journalist might say, oh, I don't have a future there. So that's another concern, I think. Do you still look at the bright kid and tell her that she has a future? You know, it's interesting. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the question was, do I still look at the bright kid and tell them that they have a, fu a future? And the answer is yes, uh, because I think there will be a way. <laughs> I think organizations such as Jim have, have shown that there's an alternative way of, of doing good journalism. Uh, Ten years, eight years ago during the recession, I was very, very worried. And I used to teach journalism, and I, and I stopped, because I, I didn't know what to say to those kids anymore about their future. 
I'm actually hoping I can go back. I, I was teaching it at the collegiate level. I'm actually hoping I can go back because I think that there is a path forward. It's going to be a much smaller profession than it used to be. Uh, but if, if these times prove anything, they prove how critical journalism is. So I want those bright kids in the business. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the other, or Jerry touched on, a, I, I guess, another dynamic that's worth mentioning, which is the, you've not only got the problems that we've aired here tonight, but it's the problems of, the financial problems of, of the mass media, um, whereby it used to be mass, advertisers paid the bills, be it newspapers or television, advertisers paid the bills, and what's happened uh, because of the internet is those audiences are fragmented. Um, uh, television stations have fewer viewers than they used to. Newspapers have fewer viewers than they used to. Um, uh, both have, uh, in radio news outside of WBFO, this doesn't exist. Um, you've, got, uh, you've got fewer advertisers as well. And as a result, you've got fewer journalists. There is something like 30,000 fewer print journalists in America today than there was a decade ago. Um, newsrooms have been decimated, uh, just absolutely decimated. More and more, there's pressure to do the easy stuff, the sports, entertainment, cover City Hall, cover the meetings, don't investigate City Hall, cover the meetings. Etc. Etc. So you've got fewer journalists on the print side. On the television side, I, I know, having done it now for the last five years, these guys are under siege. It used to be, there was a broadcast at six and a broadcast at eleven. Now there's morning. There's five. There's five thirty. There's ten. There's eleven. There's social media. Write a story for the web. While television has not lost its share of reporters to the degree print has. They are being asked to pump out so much more stuff in their report, as are print people, because you've got to write the blog post, you've got to do social media. So you've got fewer reporters with more duties chasing more stories in the face of corporate and government tactics that try to make it as difficult as possible. So in a sense, it's a perfect storm. The good news is that there are more ways of telling stories more ways of researching stories and more ways of distributing stories than there's ever been. So in a sense, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. But it's it's not it's not at all easy. I'm going to ask each guy one more question, and then I want to open it up for a for a handful of questions from the audience. Looking forward, what is our future? What is what is twofold? Where do you see press relations? press government relations in five years? And how do you see uh, the whole media landscape and this, this polarization that we've seen in the country? And what can we as journalists do to constructively, or can we do anything as journalists to constructively address that problem? And if so, what is it? Let me start from the other end. I've been going. I've been going this way. Let me. Let me. I'll start. Let me start with Steve. You guys can think yeah, about right. the question a, a little bit first. You may hate this answer, but that's the future. 
it, it, it's, it's going to be the future. Um, we've seen deterioration of print readership. We've seen deterioration, seeing deterioration of television viewership. It's an on-demand world. You want to watch a movie, you sit down in front of the television, you flip on your Netflix account, and you get it. You want to know what the weather is, you grab your phone, you get it. That's what I believe the next generation is going to expect from us. So we're going to have to be more nimble. We're going to have to be smarter, quicker. Um, and we're going to have to keep our eye on you know, the same standards. Um, working hard, working harder, working more often doesn't mean you get to you know, fudge the standards. The standards remain the same. Um, to me, this you know this job that I have is you know the great investigation every day. It's it's a chase after things that I did not know the day before, and being able to report it, condense it down, be able to produce it for somebody else, so that they can make more intelligent decisions about how they're going to run their lives. Those things remain the same, and we're going to have to really mind our manners about that kind of stuff. Um, because people are actively trying to undermine what we do. So we have to kind of double down on it. But if you think you're gonna, you know, we're gonna postpone the transition to a digital world, I'm telling you it's not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. But that's not an entirely bad thing. It's opened up the door for a lot of people who don't work it for Buffalo News or for Politico or for a television station to get out there and do citizen reporting. And there's a lot of it out there. You can argue there's more reporting out there today than there's ever been. Can you find it? Do you believe it? Well, that's a choice that you have to make. But it's out there. And we're going to have to compete with all of them. I like my odds. Um, I agree. Uh, you know, I, I, I probably, before some of the, the more uh, established journalists, because just probably virtue of my age, was saying that, hey guys, you're not gonna have a seven day a week Buffalo News in 10 years. You're just not, because it would be stupid of the Buffalo News to do it. Because what was state of the art technology for the mass production and dissemination uh, as cheaply as possible, as quickly as possible of news uh, to, to you know, distributing through newsboys with funny hats and you know carts all around town and, and cheap paper and, and pictures, etc. That's state-of-the-art technology in 1925. And and I, I say this with great reverence for the Buffalo News and for print newspapers. I am a print newspaper guy. It's just it's 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 ridiculous. Why would you do that when you can email the stories out and when we all have our smartphones in our pockets, or when we can all turn over in the morning and pull out our smartphones or our tablets or our computers or our TVs or soon probably the retinal implant that will broadcast <laughs> on the inside or off. Who the hell knows? I don't know. So there's just no reason to do that anymore. And I think that the 6 and the 11 o'clock news, for the reasons you mentioned, why would we do that? Why stay up when you can, you, the, the, the distribution uh, formats and opportunities are, are so much broader. So what I think about when I think about the media landscape in five years is Building on what Steve said, the institutional players that currently exist, the WGRCs, the Buffalo News, the Politicos, the Albany Times Unions, take your pick, the WBFOs, they have systems in place, they have trained professionals who 
who understand how to gather facts, how to distill facts, how to contextualize facts, and how to clearly and concisely present facts to citizens. That is a skill. It doesn't matter if you do it on words, it doesn't matter if you do it in a radio broadcast, in a podcast broadcast, in a 10 second Snapchat video, in a tweet, in an evening news segment, it does not matter. It's the same basic skill set. So you have these institutional players that have this skill set, but their economic model is collapsing. And the question is whether or not they will be smart enough to uh, make that pivot, to make that transition uh, in such a way that their expertise, their institutional brand, their institutional power, their institutional experience is suited to the coming marketplace. Uh, and that is very much going to be a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and the New York Times and the Washington Post are doing great. They're national publications. They're doing a great job of that. Um, I think in my, my home area of Albany, the Albany Times Union and some of the local papers in Troy and Schenectady, they're not doing nearly as good a job of that. And I think they're going to suffer the consequences. Uh, the local television stations, the same. I don't think that they're necessarily making that pivot in a very clean or elegant manner. And so I fear not as much for the 10 or 15 years for where we are once we figure out this technological leap, right? Once we all stop taking courses and we're all driving cars and we just all acknowledge that we're driving cars now because we are. Um, but it's that interregnum that, that I think is, is going to be bumpy and terrible in many ways and it's going to hurt people it's going to hurt families. Um, to get to the other half of your question, Jim, you asked about press, um, press, black relations, press government relations. Take your pick how you want to uh, set it up. Um, I think that all the issues that we've previously discussed about the eroding credibility of the mainstream media will be exacerbated during that period. And it will probably, if there are nasty players, and I'm sure there will be, be exploited on the other side. Uh, in terms of just the sheer question, absent the economics and absent the changing landscape of where I see uh, press government relations going, um, I, I, I still think that the, the line is going to slide, but my hope is that things will, um, things, things will, will stable, stabilize a bit. But I also think that there is a world in which, given the technological advances, given the disruptions that are going to happen to mainstream media, uh, and given, again, the ability of officials, corporations, unions, name your institution, to communicate directly to their constituents, that the press may become a luxury good, where uh, unbiased, filtered information, the likes of which we all produce, become uh, a good of the, um, of the elite, of the college-educated, perhaps, or of the, the economically secure, in a way that it was more of a public good previously. It's not a, I'm not proud of that. I, I, I fear that that could happen. Jerry? Dark. Go ahead, Jerry. Um, Lighten them up, I, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I pretty much, this is not to lighten things up at all. I pretty much agree with everything that, that, that Steve and Jimmy said, and I'll, I'll just add a couple of things to it. Uh, I think that the future does involve politicians trying to go around journalists using social media. That's the way it is now. That's the way it's been a couple for a few years, and it's going to continue. Now, depending on how things go in this country, things could go in two very, very different directions. Uh, if things go well <coughs> in the next few years, and you know, there's no economic crisis, there's no war, 
then I think we're going to probably have this continued landscape that we have now, where a certain percentage of people really do rely on the mainstream media, another percentage rely on partisan media, another you know, subset of that are looking at the president's tweets every day. But if something goes wrong, if the economy goes south, or if something happens with North Korea, I can't predict what's going to happen with where people get their information. I, I think that could be, either one of those circumstances could be hugely disruptive, and I don't think that we can really predict at this point in time uh, what would happen. Now, in terms of the, the future of the media, I, I will tell you, I, I worry. I, I do feel like, in a way, these are the best of times and the worst of times. I do have the opportunity, uh, as do these guys, to do really good work that really matters to, uh, to this community, I think. Um, but at the same time, I get pressures to write something every day at 11 o'clock so that it's 11 in the morning, so it's on our website. Yeah, and it, it's sometimes not necessarily something people need to know. And the truth is, the more pressure there is to write something that people are gonna click on, the, the less time we have to write the stories that people really need to know. And that's what I worry about most. Well, on a happy note, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's field a few questions. I'm looking for questions as opposed to speeches. So, uh, so who's, who's got a question? Let's start with the young lady right here. What's the question about uh, press secretaries in Washington? I didn't hear you with that person. Um, contrast, Sean uh, Spicer with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, different approaches. I mean, what is your take on, is it better, is it worse, is it about I'll the same? The question. Okay, actually, why don't you repeat the uh, question? The question is, is Sarah Huckabee Sanders better than Sean Spicer as White House press secretary? <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm gonna give you a really disappointing answer. I don't care. Yeah. And I don't know because of the nature of what I do. You know, the nature of what I do is regional reporting, reporting what's happening in Washington for all of you. And so for me, I really like the fact that Samantha Cotton, who is the press secretary for Tom Reed, is doing a much better job than the previous press secretary. That's what really matters to me. So I'm, I'm sorry, that's a very disappointing answer, but I think it's also telling, because I think sometimes people think that what I do is cover the White House, <laughs> and it's not. You know, what I, what I cover is you know, three lawmakers from Western New York, two U.S. senators, and all the issues that matter to this community. Jim, you were talking about uh, the number of people who believe the media is seeing like one-third The question is, uh, how do people get to this point where they really view the press as the enemy, and aren't they educated in terms of civics and all that stuff? And obviously, uh, there's a bit of an education gap going on. I am just wondering if there are any teachers in the audience. 
Judging from what I hear from some of my readers, I really, I really wonder. Um, and you know, it's funny, it, but you know, I've spent a lot of time the last couple of years covering refugee issues, and I've met a lot of refugees who study for the citizenship exam. And a lot of them are better versed than some longtime American citizens in terms of how U.S. government works, and that's that's frightening. The question was whether the, the movement away from the two parties uh, creates more of an audience or readership or viewership for, for uh, nonpartisan news. Uh, I, I couldn't care less. I, I, I couldn't care less whether you sign up to be a Republican or a Democrat or you're a middle of the road or you're a, a socialist, a Marxist like Jerry or, <laughs> or anything like that. He's a Marxist-Leninist. It was a, the reader was wrong. Um, um, but, but I. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think that uh, I've never viewed my job as trying to serve people of any particular view. Uh, I, I will speak for Jerry and, and Steve and say that we've gone after members of both parties, uh, that we've, we've gone after and, and, and written things that are critical of, of people of both sides. Um, I do think that there is an inherent, um, you could call it a bias, that I have toward fact toward fairness, toward legality, toward ethics, uh, toward intelligence, frankly, among government officials. Uh, I am a college-educated guy, uh, and you could argue, and there are people who do argue, that that makes me, and makes us part of the problem, and part of the, this, this sort of elite, get, go, get the, go get them kind of bubble. I don't quite know how to break out of that, but in terms of just an erosion of party, uh, I, don't, I don't see that having a big effect. Couple more, couple more back there. Isn't the only reason that uh, a government agency like the Buffalo Police Department can afford to say to investigative journalists like Danielle Thrapp, they're cut off from access, that other media outlets are willing to just give endless clickbait stories about, you know, I mean, you can't say that a government agency like the Buffalo Police Department doesn't get good press constantly. I kind of feel like it's sort of what Jerry's Remsky was alluding to. Like, Give it out by 11 a.m. Particular, you know, here in Buffalo, we went through this like enormous media outpouring over the tragic death of one officer. That the kind of the number of hours and words and page views dwarfs anything that could be done around police issues in the city that all other media outlets combined are doing. But you know, what should the public uh, say about that or do about it? Uh, I, I really don't know. Uh, 
the question, actually, I'll answer this one. The question is, you know, what could or should news outlets do in the face of uh, government officials who try and basically blackball certain organizations? And I'll, I'll tell you that if you ever wanted to organize a conspiracy, the last people you would invite to are a bunch of news people because they're not going to conspire when it comes to anything or agree or do anything else. Channel 2 and Investigative Post might because we're partners, but, it, it, but it, it won't go to the Buffalo News and it won't go to WBFO, and et cetera, et cetera. I think that, uh, I think new, I, I think that people in government have become adept, I think both the mayor and the governor have been pretty adept at, at times anticipating negative coverage from us. And I'm sure this happened with other outlets. And then going fishing for somebody who will do something, uh, will write something positive as either a preemptive strike or reaction afterwards. I can tell you that uh, I lost track of counting the number of Buffalo Billion investigations we did that had Elaine Carolleros and Andrew Cuomo's press office scrambling to get somebody to write something to change the subject or to broadcast something to change the subject. And so, but I, I don't think there's anything that we could, uh, I would think at the national level, if, if it gets to a point where certain news organizations are precluded from, uh, from the daily press pool, people may finally decide that they need to uh, maybe band together before they hang separately. But aside from that, I, I think we just have to, you know, I think Jimmy mentioned, you have to find ways of working around the obstacles. And I think that good news organizations find ways of doing that. You know, we certainly do. I, I on occasion, will have a conversation with some flack who uh, stonewalled us. We got the story. We ran the story. They looked like hell in the process. And I will, and I will tell them next time I talk to them, so you're stonewalling. How, how did that work for you? Did that work out? Did that, did that kill the story? Uh, no, the story ran, and in the process, we pointed out all the ways you tried to stop that information from reaching the public. So, you know. Uh, just one little interesting footnote about the way the Washington Press Corps, particularly the Congressional Press Corps, works in situations like this. We kind of look out for each other. Uh, so I can think of two instances where members of Congress were trying to avoid me for one reason or another. And why is there a siren every time I speak? <laughs> <laughs> it's Daniela's fault. Ah, okay. Uh, one time, you know, I was totally blackballed by a member of Congress. Wouldn't speak to me. A colleague of mine said, what are your questions? I'm going to go up and ask him. And, and Congress is still fairly open. You can actually be out there in what's called the speaker's lobby and wait for members of Congress to come out. Uh, and another time, more recently, uh, a certain member was trying to avoid me. And a former intern of mine, who's working for another publication now, texted me and said, go over here. He's right over there. <laughs> you know, so, so we work together in, in Washington in those ways, even though we may be for or very different organizations from different parts of the country. Yeah, can I affirm that on the Albany perspective? Sure. Just to affirm the same thing on the Albany perspective, there are about 40 reporters in what's called the Legislative Correspondence Association, which is the association of reporters who cover the state capitol from, from various news outlets around the state. And there is a level of collegiality, and there is especially a level of solidarity when it comes to access issues. 
Uh, and when it comes to some standards of, of the norm, which I think is what your original question was about, you're never going to get, uh, I don't think you're ever going to get reporters to agree, as Jim said, to, I'm not going to write the story about the new money for the Buffalo Zoo that might be preempting Jerry's expose about the, uh, about the, the naval guys partying, etc. Um, but, but we faced several issues of uh, access. Uh, at one point earlier this year, uh, our most excellent current governor, the most excellent current, sorry, the most excellent governor we currently have um, was, was trying to um, change the release of the budget. The budget, our budget, right? You cannot think of a more public document than the budget for the state. Uh, and the press corps basically banded together and said, you, you, we're not gonna agree. They, they wanted to basically put it under what's called an embargo, which is they would talk about it, but it wouldn't be able to be released for several hours later. Uh, and so those kinds of things do happen on the state level as well. Yeah. If you're looking for uh, an uplifting thought, here it is, um, to the gentleman's point. Yes, if we do a tough story and we get stoned by a business, a government agency, what have you, and they walk another story over that's some piece of puff pastry, you know, so they can fill their newscast. Let me tell you emphatically that in this particular market, that strategy will not effing work. <laughs> and here's why, here's why. The brand that I represent, which is essentially the brand that Jim, Jim's organization exists, to live up to is holding people in power accountable. Get the answers to the tough questions. And guess what? We have an audience that is the envy of our two tel other television stations because we go after it and we get it. And they don't like it and I don't care because I don't work for them. I work for you. I work for you. Same thing. Jim's organization exists because there is a hunger for this kind of reporting. You're here, you're proof. They're growing. So are we, and we're not going anywhere. I'm, I'm almost tempted to end on an upbeat note, but let's ask one more, one more. Yeah, over here. Over here. Uh, okay, Dennis. Dennis is my advocate. Yeah, I'm not gonna mess with Jody.
Lord, that's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm going to turn it to greater minds to answer. <laughs> well, I think that one thing that we can do uh, as an institution, the media, is show people what government means to them. Uh, I hate to say this, but I feel like some people are just lazy and, and don't pay attention to civic affairs. And they will say the government doesn't matter to them, and it doesn't matter to them because they never bothered to pay attention to it. And so therefore, they don't know <laughs> what it matters to them. But it does. It does every time they pay their taxes. It does every time they drive down the street. Um, so when I do, you know, I made a conscious effort this year knowing that, you know, people perceive of me as part of the mainstream media who's supposedly anti-Trump. I've made a, a concerted effort to reach out to people. Um, I did a story in the springtime talking to Trump supporters out in Wyoming County. I did one back in February talking to Trump supporters here. I spent today driving around the southern tier talking to public officials about about the budget uh, or about the um, tax bill. So, you know, I'm trying to do my part. It's a very, very good question that you ask, and I don't think there's an easy way to answer it. So. I love this question for young people, okay? <coughs> because they're the most difficult to connect to government, right? They they don't when they when they're voting age, they don't participate. This is what I tell them about not participating. You don't care who the senator is from Kentucky or Ohio, but those folks are gonna determine whether or not your student, your college loans, whether or not you're gonna be able to get them, whether or not you're gonna be able to afford them, whether or not you're gonna be able to continue and finish your education. So don't you think you ought to vote? and have a say about this, this sort of thing. Because otherwise, you are allowing other people to dictate to you, and well, young people hate this. I have three boys, they range from 16 to 21, and they hate it, you know, do this. They don't like it, they do. But young people hate it when they're being told what to do, when they don't have a voice. So my, my message to you for them is, if you don't like being told what to do, get aware, get woke, and get in the voting book. Because there are two things that you're given in this country, and only two that are for free, a public education and a vote. That's it, that's all you get. You better use both of them. All right, I think with that we're, we're losing people, so I'm gonna, uh, call it a night here. I want to I wanna thank everybody for coming. I want to encourage you to uh, to make a donation to us to double your money by the end of the year. Um, anybody who, uh, hopefully everybody's given us their email. We'll put you on our email list. You'll get heads up on uh, stories as we publish them. You'll get, uh, I do a weekly newsletter, which, um, uh, which goes out on Sunday, which manages to upset everybody. <laughs> At least one person every week. Um, often people who give me money who write and tell me, what am I giving you money for when you say that? Because I, I am what I am. Um, and you get to double your money through December 31st. So I thank you for your time. We'll keep you posted on upcoming events, stories, and whatnot. And uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for coming.
For Investigative Post, I'm Jim Heaney. Thanks for listening. Thank you.